0: Smarties, this is one of those episodes. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Rishi Sriram, who serves as an associate professor in Baylor University's School of Education. His research interests include the development of talent, the science of learning, and college student success, and his research has been widely published. He has also written for Scientific American and Edutopia, which is how we found him. He is currently working on a book about the development of talent. This episode is so delicious. We talk about how learning occurs in the brain, how important and normal forgetting is to learning, interleaving, spacing, and mindfulness. We have an amazing conversation about how essential productive struggle is to learning as a whole. He also gives us some fantastic tangibles, things we can do immediately to impact the lives of the learners in our practices. He also shares some thoughts he and his wife have developed on parenting with high expectations while not linking their kids' self-esteem to their learning. Also, if you're on Patreon with us, we are going to share the conversation with Rishi Off-Air. He goes into how he sets the stage for his students, how to think about reading, and the tricks he shares with the learners in his own classroom. We also have a larger conversation about some of the gaps in our own educations, including understanding the brain science of learning. If you're not with us on Patreon yet, you can subscribe by going to www.patreon.com smarter LearnSmarterPodcast, and for a monthly donation of $5, you'll have immediate access to everything else we've shared on Patreon, and in turn, you'll be supporting us and the work that we do here. These are conversations we were having off air with our guests and with each other anyway, so we're so excited to actually have a way of sharing that with you. This is going to be one of those episodes where you say, I wish I had known this sooner. We had actually planned even more content for this episode, but we decided to instead bring Dr. Rishi back for another episode really soon, so make sure you're on the lookout for that. Now, let's dig in.
1: You want to learn faster, but sometimes
0: working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 109 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Rachel Cap, And I'm Stephanie Pitts. <laughs> And today we welcome Dr. Rishi Sriram to the podcast. Welcome, Rishi. Welcome. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited because I read your article maybe three weeks ago from Edutopia, and I was like, we got to get him on the podcast. And I immediately texted Steph, and I'm like, the article that you wrote and the work that you do is so up our alley. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for agreeing to be here, but why don't you tell our audience a little bit about who you are? are and your background and kind of bring us up to speed to what led to that Edutopia article, which we will link in the show notes of this episode.
1: Sure. I would love to. I am a professor in the School of Education at Baylor University, and when I was getting my PhD in education at Azusa Pacific University, in the first week of my PhD program, I was handed Carol Dweck's brand new book, mm-hmm. if you can imagine, Mindset. Which I know that you all have talked about a lot on your podcast. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was a new concept, and I was completely enthralled by it. And I ended up doing my dissertation on it. Oh. But there was something about mindset that troubled me just a little bit. And that's that Dr. Dweck researches how someone's beliefs about their ability or their talent or their intelligence has a profound impact on their behaviors. Uh, She's a psychologist, so she focuses on the psychology as she should, but Dr. Dweck doesn't really address to what extent your talent or your intelligence can change. Hmm. She shows that beliefs matter But what about reality? And can you actually improve these things that it's important to believe that you can improve? Mm. And this really led me on a journey to learn everything that I could about intelligence and the science of learning. And I really wanted to know, is intelligence something that you're born with or is it something that is developed? And if intelligence is this ability to learn, can you learn how to learn? I couldn't believe all that I was learning about learning. Mm -hmm. Here I was with a PhD in education, serving as a professor in a school of education, and I was embarrassed at how little knowledge I had about the science of learning. So since then, I've started looking for opportunities to talk about learning and intelligence and the development of talent. And specifically in my own research, I study college student success. And so I've looked for ways that I can kind of apply what I'm learning to the students that I teach and uh, to the students that uh, I study as well.
0: This is something that I think Steph and I talk a lot about on the podcast, which is how many educators don't have a background in understanding learning. So out of curiosity, what were some of the big things that, as you were learning about the science of learning, what were some of the big things that kind of surprised you, if you can think of any?
1: One of the big things that surprised me as I was learning about the science of learning is that while it's really important to honor the uniqueness of the learner, that we as human beings learn in surprising similar ways. To give an example, we often talk about visual learners versus auditory learners. Mm -hmm. But if you really think about it, no one ever says, wait, will you stop showing me what you're trying to teach me? I just want to hear it. Right. We're really all designed to learn visually first, whether that's visually, literally, or through stories and examples. And then the other things kind of supplement that. So that was one of the things that was really surprising to me. I also was really surprised, and this leads into that article in Edutopia, about this notion of difficulty when it comes to learning and how difficulty can be something that really enhances learning and it's something that can be really demotivating for learners. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of find this sweet spot, so to speak, you end up encountering this idea of productive struggle.
0: And the productive struggle is really what I wanted to focus a lot of our conversation on today. And the research that you did, can you talk a little bit about that article about the throwing of the ball? Oh, yeah. So interesting. That was so fascinating to me, but I have some theories about it, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So another big surprise in learning about learning was this idea of what we call interleaving. And it started with an experiment in the 1970s where they took a group of kids and they asked them to throw a beanbag at a target that was just a few feet away, four feet away. And when that was over, they split the kids up into two groups. One group, they said, keep practicing at this target four feet away. And the other group, they said, instead of practicing at four feet away, we want you to practice at three feet and five feet and never practice at four feet. And then after a time of doing this experiment and having these two groups practice, they brought them together again, and they wanted to see how good they were at tossing beanbags at this target. And to their surprise, and to all of our surprise, I think, the group that practiced at three and five feet away were much, much better at their performance than the group that was always practicing at four feet away. This is counterintuitive. Yeah, You would think that practicing at the target that you're going to be tested on at the end is the best kind of practice. What they found was that the group that never practiced at four feet away was so much better because of the difficulty that was created from having to throw at a target three feet and five feet away. So in other words, it was a method of practice that created this productive struggle that led to better learning that allowed them to be better at throwing at the target.
2: So fascinating.
0: It's exactly what you said. If we had to guess at the beginning of this experiment, we all would have said, no, the kids who are practicing at the distance that they're going to be tested on are going to ultimately do better. How do you explain it?
1: Yeah, that's right. So one of the most important concepts for learning is that learning needs to be appropriately difficult if it is actually going to lead to improvement. So there are lots of ways of describing this. Sometimes it's referred to as desirable difficulty, sometimes as engaged learning, sometimes as deliberate practice. Maybe you've heard the term zone of proximal development. Mm -hmm. I really like the term productive struggle because I think it's the most descriptive We know that quantity of practice matters. If you want to get better at something, if you want to learn something, you need to put in the time. I think we've done much better at describing the quantity of practice than we have at describing quality of practice. Mm. I think it's a lot harder to measure. You can have two kids sitting in a room at desks and say, well, they both studied for an hour whereas the actual experiences that they went through in studying were quite different, and that's going to lead to very different outcomes. So in terms of quality, it's not just how much you practice, it's also how well you practice. And I think what's really interesting is that this idea of continually getting better is a moving target, right? Yeah. I mean, the better you get, the more it's going to take for you to struggle productively. So I kind of think of it as three zones. You have your green zone, which represents the things, the tasks that you can do really easily. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum is your red zone. These are the things that you're just not equipped to do yet. You haven't developed the skills that you need to succeed. And Learning occurs best when it occurs within the yellow zone, this middle area where it's not too easy and it's not too difficult. It's not so easy that you can almost do it without giving your full attention, but it's not so difficult that when you do give your full attention to everything that you have, it is possible for you to do it. So maybe a yellow zone would be a Seventy to eighty percent success rate, where you really have to try. You really have to engage your brain fully in order to practice for the sake of improvement. And when you're done practicing at this kind of level, it's exhausting. And you really feel like you've worked. You've earned a break. You need a break. But another thing that I was really interested in is what is happening inside your brain when this kind of learning is occurring, and. All I knew when it came to the brain was that our brains are made of neurons. We have 86 billion neurons, give or take. So I was surprised to learn that there are all sorts of cells in the brain other than neurons. And there are these particular cells called glial cells. And their job is to help to form this substance, this white fatty substance called myelin. So when we learn something, what is happening is that neurons are connecting in our brains. And when we practice, and we practice for the sake of improvement, and we spend time in the yellow zone, and we spend time engaging in this idea of productive struggle, this white, fatty, insulating substance starts to form around the signals in our brain. And what that does is it allows our brain signals to travel faster, stronger, and better. And a well myelinated brain signal can travel up to 100 times or more faster than an unmyelinated brain signal. Hmm. So I think this really captures what's happening in our brains as we get better and better at something. So with my kids, it's really funny because when they don't do well at something, They'll start to use language like, oh, I just haven't developed that myelin. Yet. Yeah. And it just makes you laugh. You know, it's kind of become the language in our household. Yeah. Of the stuff in our brain that I think is really important, but we almost never talk
0: about. This is fascinating.
2: It is fascinating. I was trying to think of something that we could relate to. And I was thinking of learning to drive a car or starting a new job when you're learning to drive a car, so much concentration, it's so much energy. It's so much having to keep all these things in your brain at the same time. It's a lot of information that you're consuming and processing and
0: evaluating and shifting simultaneously.
2: Yeah, exactly. But now Mm -hmm. you don't have to pay attention to all those things when you're driving because it's in the green zone, right? It's intuitive. Exactly.
0: You have the myelin for it. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great example for several reasons. One, I think that this is what gets us in trouble when we're 16, 17, 18 versus when we're 35 and we're now tempted to do things like text while drive because these things have formed habits. You know, we use the term habits and what habits are really describing are a series of brain signals that are so well myelinated that it's almost as if we can do them without thinking. Of course, our brain is thinking, but it's just not requiring, like you said, that conscious prefrontal cortex kind of attention, executive functioning.
2: There you go. It's automatic versus a shift. Mm -hmm. Whenever I've driven a stick shift, I'm like, oh, this is so much effort. I don't want to do this. Sidebar, you know how to drive a stick shift? (laughs) Yes, I do. This does not surprise me at all. (laughs) I drove all the way from France to Florence on a stick shift.
0: Yeah, not down with that. Okay. Go on with your story. Sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But these days, you know, I haven't done it in a while. And when I learned how to do it, it was so much effort. I'd been driving an automatic for so long. Yeah. Ugh, it's too much work. I don't want to do it. Uh, Yeah.
0: Sorry. Did we interrupt you, Rishi? I felt like you wanted to say something beyond that it was a good example. (laughs)
1: Well, it is a good example. And I was just going to add that it's funny that you use driving as the example, because one of the things that I use as a metaphor to describe myelin is this idea of paving roads, Mm -hmm. right? So we're all familiar with the light bulb metaphor when it comes to learning. Mm -hmm. You learn something and it's like a light turns on And I think that that doesn't serve us well for a couple of reasons. Lights often are either on or they're off. Mm. And they don't really capture getting better at something. So I've started to use this metaphor of paving roads. Like when you're first learning something, it's like you're paving a path in a meadow that has never had a road before. And then after a while, it becomes a dirt path and you're able to pick up speed and go a little bit faster. If it's raining, you're going to take those curves really slow. And if you keep at it, if you keep firing those brain signals, then eventually it becomes a paved road. It can even become like a freeway in your mind. And so what those people are doing that we admire for what they've learned is that they've practiced so much and to such a difficult extent that where our brains are kind of struggling to fire those signals that require those thoughts or actions, their brains have these freeways from this myelin that's been produced.
2: And they're not Los Angeles freeways. No. <laughs> <laughs> they have a that's lot of right. traffic. <laughs> but the open road freeways, yeah.
0: Quarantine freeways are
2: pretty great. Quarantine freeways, (laughs) yes!
0: (laughs) We're just speeding across town right now. 20 minutes everywhere. Oh my goodness. Yeah, It is an upside, I guess. But the other thing that I really connected with in your article was the four strategies that you highlighted. Because I particularly loved the retrieval one, which was essentially forgetting. What you learned and then relearning the information. We're really big advocates of that, of students walking away. We've done episodes on when you study, walk away from the information and then come back to it, relearn it because you're much more likely to retain it and put things in place the first time you review to help yourself in that next review process. But can you talk a little bit about that strategy and then the other three strategies that you shared?
1: Yeah, and I love that you teach your students that because it normalizes forgetting. Yes. We think that when we forget something, we have done something wrong, or maybe even worse, that we're stupid. And in reality, our brains are taking in so much information that in order to survive, the default of our brain setting has to be to forget. So it's like we have to persuade our brains that something is important enough to actually remember. And the way we persuade our brains is by letting our brains forget it and then coming back to it and our brain says, well, wait a minute, I just put this out in the trash and now you're saying you need it again, you know, maybe I'll put it in the driveway now. And we encounter it again and it's like, oh, well, if this is that important to you, then maybe I'll put it on the porch, you know, and then eventually it just moves closer and closer into your house, which makes it easier and easier to retrieve. This notion of retrieval is something that I think goes hand in hand with productive struggle because the hardest thing it is for our brain to do is remember we want the multiple choice mm-hmm. or we want to have our notes in front of us. there's a term that i'm sure you're familiar with called the illusion of familiarity mm-hmm. where you look at your study notes and your brain convinces you you know this mm-hmm. 100%. because it's all familiar. And then you go take the test and you're like, wait a minute, I don't remember. I can't recall. I can't retrieve any of that information.
2: That's rereading the textbook version of studying. Doesn't work. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And even when we think that we're underlining or highlighting, we're thinking that that must be doing something when all it's doing is maybe pointing out the things that we need to learn. Right. So retrieval is this notion of getting your brain with as little help as possible to reproduce the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors that you are desiring. And this is the hardest form of practice. It would be like a form of studying where you put a blank sheet of paper and say for the next 15 minutes, for the next 30 minutes, I'm just going to write down everything I know on this topic. I mean, even thinking about that exhausts me, right? I would never want to study that way. And yet that is the kind of studying that produces the strongest impact in the brain. So when we retrieve something, we are telling our brain that it's important. We're practicing the firing of those brain signals, which then tells our brain to myelinate those brain signals. And we're also telling our brain to literally move that learning into a different part of the brain where it's more quickly accessed. And so the things that we practice, we really do become experts on because we can access it so quickly and it all begins with forgetting and then going back and relearning it and relearning it until all of a sudden it's like you can't forget it. And it's because those pathways have been myelinated and your brain has now been persuaded, this is important, we know it's important, and so we're going to make space for it in the right places in your house.
2: It's a 50 nifty United States song. Yeah. It's just (laughs) tricking our brain into understanding. I need to be able to
0: recall this information. And I love the idea of just like sit and write what you can remember on this topic. It's very akin to what we say Mm -hmm. when it comes to writing, which is start with just whatever you can remember put something on the page. Don't go into research mode right away. Just write what you can initially. So you're not looking at a blank page. There's a lot of reasons to do that. But I love the idea of doing that. So simple as a study strategy. Mm -hmm. Sit and write, set your alarm for 15 minutes, see what you can recall.
2: It's interesting. I was thinking about in high school, I had a teacher teaching biology and he went on to become a doctor, but he had us sit down and write Pretend you're on an airplane and you're sitting next to a passenger and you have to explain everything you've learned this year in biology. Wow. And that was our final. And it was one of those things at the moment I was thinking, why is he making us do this? Yeah. But actually, I enjoyed it much more than any other science final I had, because I could really discuss what was interesting to me and what I liked and all of that, and really made me understand rather than just like rote memorization. So what you're saying, it makes total sense to me. And look at it, Steph. It's X amount of years
0: after you took that final. A lot of years. I didn't want to say, (laughs) but you still remember. I mean, I don't remember very many details about the finals that I took in high school. In fact, A lot of my finals, I don't remember, except for my last final that I ever took in undergrad, and I wasn't sure I was going to pass the class Mm. because I stopped Mm. going because I was a senior. (laughs) So (laughs) update, I passed. That's like my panic dream. That's like my anxiety nightmares. I didn't pass that particular final, Mm -hmm. and I had to go back and take Oceans 101 again. But (laughs) I thought it was going to be like talking about animals, and it was so not. It was like sand and stuff. Anyway, sidetracked. And I really appreciated what you said. It really resonated with me too, Rishi, that normalizing, that forgetting is a part of the process. And stuff. I feel like there's so much we could explore with that mm-hmm. in the work that we do, because we're really into metacognition. We're really into talking to kids about their brains and how learning actually functions in the brain. And I don't think that we have necessarily had that particular conversation enough. We tell parents, you need to plan for the ups and downs. Like when you go through the process of educational therapy, it's four steps forward, two steps back and plan for that. But if we teach our learners plan that you will forget because that's what brains do. I think that could be so powerful in the work that we do.
2: I think, yeah, normalizing it so there isn't the shame around forgetting because it is shameful to forget. Like in the moment when you get called on, when a teacher starts just picking people and they ask a question and you probably know the answer, but you're put on the spot. And being able to retrieve for me was so hard Mm -hmm. that it just caused me so much shame and anxiety that I just sat at the back of the class. Look down, don't make eye contact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's huge.
1: The pressure from society. And I can see why it is so tempting to want to study in ways that make us feel smarter. Yeah. When the best studying exposes what we've yet to learn. And I think that's really hard because you have to be in a non pressure situation in order to be willing to feel the safety to study in a way that exposes what you haven't learned yet rather than confirms what you've already learned.
0: We're just going to pause emotionally and give our audience an opportunity to take that in because Steph is doing in our notes for this episode exactly what I was going to go do, which was go and write down what you just said, that the best studying exposes what we haven't yet learned. And we talk about that a lot, that your brain wants to tell you that you know the information but you're not doing the things to really test yourself to see what you don't know.
2: (laughs) We talk about that in creating a study plan.
0: Yeah, it was one of our earliest episodes that we did about how to study and why creating a study plan is so important because we talk about this period of assessment that students need to go through, and it doesn't have to be this long extended exercise, and we actually teach to our audience and to our clients the red light, green light method, which was funny when you had that red, green, yellow analogy, because we use that for studying uh-huh. in terms of go through all the information and- Take stock. Take stock. What do you know? What's a green? What's a yellow? What's a red? Okay, now focus on the reds. That doesn't mean you don't avoid the greens. It just means it gives you directionality of where to focus. And we'll link those couple of episodes that we've done on
2: studying in the show notes. It's episode three and four.
0: Yeah, that's how important we thought it was. But also forgive us if you go back and listen to that episode. We're much better in the hundreds than we were in the early numbers. So it's just nice to know that the way that we were teaching and we knew it worked, but now we know the science behind it. Yeah. So can you go on and talk about interleaving a little bit more? Because that was the next strategy to make productive struggle work best for you. And
1: interleaving, when I talked about that famous experiment with the beanbags and tossing from different links, rather than always practicing from a target the same distance away, that really is talking about interleaving. Interleaving is this notion that when you mix up your practice, when you are able to change up what you do, it weakens short-term memory and strengthens long-term memory. And what I mean by that is when you're able to study something in what I might call massed practice, where you're just studying it and studying it, that feeds your short term memory. So it makes you feel like I'm really, really learning this. But what happens is that that doesn't really help with your long term memory. And ironically, maybe counterintuitively, even when you say, you know what, instead of just studying and studying and studying this, I'm going to study algebra for 30 minutes and then I'm going to make myself break away and study history for 30 minutes and then I'm going to make myself break away and study biology for 30 minutes. You will feel like you're gaining nothing. Mm -hmm. You'll feel like your progress is completely stopped. But the actuality of it is that science has shown you are learning at a much higher and faster rate when you study in this sort of interleaving format. So, what I try to teach my students is that you can do this between subjects and within subjects. So, within a subject, let's say you really need to study algebra, then I would say, why not make yourself spend 10 minutes on a chapter that you were already tested on? Mm-hmm. That isn't even going to be on the next test, just to become familiar with it again and then go and study your present chapter. So, just by interleaving chapters or lessons within a subject, you can interleave. Or, of course, you can interleave between subjects by saying, Yeah, I'm gonna spend a certain amount of time on this subject. What is so hard to convince students of is that the research shows that when you ask students who interleave, versus those who did not, do you feel like you learned? Those who interleave say, no, this was awful. It felt awful. But what's actually that awful feeling is actually productive struggle. Whereas those who don't interleave and just say, okay, I'm just studying one thing for as long as I can. If you ask them how they felt about their learning, they will say, I feel like I learned a lot. It was terrific. When you go and study those two groups, the interleaving group, always outperforms the other group. And so even though it feels more difficult and feels like it's impeding your progress, it's actually helping to form that myelin in your brain and it's actually boosting your learning.
2: I can't wait to use this. Me too. I'm thinking about clients I'm having the same thought. As you were
0: sitting here talking, I'm like, okay, this is quickly going to become one of my most referred episodes Mm -hmm. for parents and learners, because there is a ton of pushback that we get when we recommend things that feel unorthodox. And we always remind parents, listen, the way your kid's going to learn Based off whatever their learning profile is, it's very likely not going to look the same way that you learned and what you did Mm -hmm. to get through. And so we have to coach parents on how to feel more comfortable with that. And I think having these larger conversations about learning is so critical for the population that we work with because we are trying to normalize their experience a little bit. Mm-hmm. As learners in the classroom, with whatever is interfering, for the kids who have attentional issues anyway, you tell them you attend for twenty minutes on this task, and then you can switch tasks and do twenty minutes. This is so feeding within their wheelhouse of how they want to operate anyway. Now you have to attend and focus in those twenty minutes, yeah. but you can switch. Yeah, I can't wait to use this even more.
2: Me too, because I was thinking specifically of Nikki, who we had on the podcast under Success Stories, and she had a lot of anxiety. And this weekend, studying for APs, because she's got three APs this week, and we were having this conversation about how she wanted to spend the day doing one subject, the day doing another subject, you know, and that's what eases her anxiety. But I can't wait to take this to her. Because you knew it, Steph. Of course, we always talk about trying to chunk things and do things. And I want her to read a third of the A Push textbook chapter one day and a third another day. And as opposed to
0: reading all of it on one day.
2: And then she would read all of it on one day and it was like 35 pages that were just miserable and it just took everything out of her. And she doesn't remember it. And she doesn't remember it. So, you know, it's an ongoing learning moment that I'm excited to have with her. That's great.
1: Well, Stephanie, and that connects directly to my next strategy, which is spacing, which is exactly what you were describing. The brain is designed to sip information, not chug information. Sip,
2: Mm. not chug. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's such a
0: good analogy. Okay.
1: And when we space out our practice, it's not just time management or a nice organized way of doing things. It actually helps learning in really significant ways. And what they've found is that spacing actually saves time. If they tell one group that you can have, let's say an hour to study this material Mm -hmm. before you get tested on it. And they tell another group that you can only have, let's say 40 minutes instead of an hour, but you need to study for 10 minutes and then take a break. 10 minutes, take a break, four times. The group that studied only 40 minutes will always outperform the group that studied 60 minutes. And it's not just one cute study out there, right? This is decades of research that have established that our brains, when we space out that practice, it allows for literally physically the short-term memories to get converted into long-term memories. Yes. I like to use the metaphor of a bathtub. You know, imagine that your brain is a bathtub and what is in the tub is your short-term memory and what is down the drain is your long-term memory. So you can fill up that tub to an extent and it will go down into your long-term memory. But there's a point at which that tub is going to fill up and you're putting in more information that can go down that drain. And all of a sudden you're making a mess and it's overflowing on the floor and all that water is getting wasted because it's not going down the drain into your long-term memory. And when you allow yourself to pour some water into the tub, let it go down the drain, pour some water into the tub, let it go down in the drain, there's no maximum of how much information you can learn because you're spacing it out the way your brain is designed to learn. Hmm.
2: So much sense. Okay. This
0: is almost a blessing in some ways to the learners that we work with. And Steph and I advocate let's do less to get more. Mm-hmm. And using a profound understanding of how the brain works and what the research is showing allows us to help, quote unquote, train more effective learners. That's right. And it's
1: not this kind of thing that works for some people and not for others. This is how we're made. And so when we start to realize, oh my goodness, there's a process that I can go through, I think it can be really empowering for students to see that, okay, there's an actual process to learning. It's not that there's something wrong with me and people are trying to give me tips and tricks to overcome the things that are wrong with me. It's that these educational therapists are actually teaching me how I was designed to learn in the first place that sometimes can never be communicated. I mean, look at my story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm getting my PhD in education before I realize that there's anything to the science of learning. And I'm thinking, what have I been doing my whole life? (laughs) Just trying to fake it till I make it the best I can when there are tried and true strategies that are out
2: there. I love this for sure. (laughs) And the last one that you talk about is mindfulness, right?
1: Yeah. Mindfulness, I think is fun to talk about because in a way it feels like rest. It doesn't feel like work as much, but in another sense, it is working. Mindfulness, if you're not familiar with it, is the sustained attention to something. So it's paying attention, but in a very kind of meditative, present to the presence sort of way, where you're really in the moment. And of course, this has taken off, and I know that you all have discussed this, but mindfulness now is available through all sorts of apps on your phone or your tablet, where you can be led through these sessions that teach you to either focus on your breathing or to focus on the sounds that you're hearing or how you're feeling the idea is practicing focus over very short sessions they can be as short as a few minutes or they can be as long as 20 to 30 minutes and they're very relaxing they're good for your soul but for your brain we've found that mindfulness can have profound impact on how much myelin is produced in your brain It has a profound impact on your learning. There are all sorts of cognitive benefits that come from you taking the time to have this sort of meditative practice. And what I love about mindfulness is that it feels like self-care. It is Mm self-care. It feels like you're doing something for yourself. And yet what you're doing also is teaching your brain to avoid distractions in a purposeful way to focus on something in the moment in a purposeful way. And that is really healthy. This idea of paying attention, that's a good metaphor to use because attention has a cost. Mm -hmm. It costs something. You can run out of money in terms of paying attention. You need to think about how much money you have in your account to pay attention before you just go on a spending spree. And mindfulness allows you to kind of form that savings account where you're really making a deposit in your account when it comes to your attention before you go and spend it.
0: The reason that I'm quiet is because I'm just processing everything that you're sharing. Yeah. I'm so glad that I reached out (laughs) to you. (laughs) Yeah. Me too.
2: Yeah. I'm so glad that you said yes. It's always one of those things where when we ask a professional to come on, it's little nerve-wracking. It's very nerve-wracking, actually. And not everybody is a podcast
0: listener, so not everybody is excited to do a podcast, but we know that you were, And this is so fantastic.
2: Rishi, I would love to hear, when you talk about your kids and what you've been able to teach them on how to learn how to learn, first of all, I want to know how old your kids are.
1: So we have a 16-year-old boy. And then we have a girl who is about to turn 14. And then we have a girl who's 11. And then we have what we're calling our bonus baby who is six months old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're back in the trenches again.
1: (laughs) Empty nesting was just Uh, within reach. uh, Just within reach.
0: (laughs) Oh, your kids must have been so surprised. Oh, your older kids.
1: We all were very <laughs> surprised, yes.
2: yes. Is it a boy or is it a girl?
1: It's a boy. Oh, two and two. As my wife likes to say, my girls are bookended yeah.
0: by our boys. Oh, love, love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what are some of the things that you've been able to teach your older ones, not the baby?
1: So my wife is also an educator. So with two parents as educators our kids are constantly tortured when it comes to learning. (laughs) And so one of the things that we've really tried to do with our children is to show them that their value is not based on their performance. Like this is something that we talk about a lot as a family. How can we as parents have really high standards for our children and what they learn and instill in them a belief that they really can learn anything. Hmm. And at the same time, not tie their value to what they learn or how they learn or how fast they learn. And this has been a constant challenge, but a real joy as parents to kind of say, no, we're not going to give up on our high standards, but we're also not going to get to a point where you feel like how much you matter depends upon your performance in learning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been really fun to be able to teach our kids that there are strategies that they can do that really maximize learning for them. Because you constantly on this podcast talk about how students and children want to please. Mm -hmm. They want to learn. They're not against you if there's a struggle You're on the same team, and I love that about the two of you. And so we call it the learning paradox, that on the one hand, we greatly underestimate what we can learn. This is what I love about Carol Dweck and her work, this growth mindset, I can learn anything. The other side of the paradox is that we can greatly overestimate how quickly we can learn. We think that if we don't get it immediately, it's because we're not smart, or we're not gifted, or we weren't meant for it, or we should try another subject, and that's just not true. Learning is really difficult. It's more difficult than any of us realize, and that's why there's all this science behind learning, because we're still figuring it out. So one of the really practical things that we do with our children when it comes to retrieval is when we ask them to study we ask them to study in ways that are really going to challenge what they don't know yet and really expose that and to help them feel safe that if they've spent a lot of time studying in ways that show them how much they need to learn, that that's a great thing. That's a mature thing. That's something to celebrate. Something else that we've fallen in love with are these cube timers. They're these timers that have different numbers on the sides of them and if you flip any of those numbers to the top it starts a timer uh, at that increment ooh you can get these on amazon we have one that one side is 5 minutes one side is 10 minutes one side is 15 minutes one side is 30 minutes and what we do is we tell our kids hey flip the timer over and study as hard as you can really trying to challenge yourself for 15 minutes or for 30 minutes. We never say more than 30 minutes really at a time. If the child is mature and can handle 30 minutes. That's great. I think 10 or 15 minutes, you'd be surprised how much can be produced in terms of learning for just 10 or 15 minutes. And then when that time is over, we say you could take a break or this is time to interleave into something else. And that has worked wonders for us because just the physical act of flipping that timer says this is something in my control. This isn't going to last forever. And at the end of it, they find themselves really happy about what they feel like they are learning. And I think when kids see that these strategies that create productive struggle work, they start to really believe that you're on their side, that you're for them, and that your high standards are really a compliment, that it's showing how much confidence you have in your children or in your students to learn.
2: Do you ever ask your kids what do they not know?
1: Oh, I love that question. I don't know if I really ask it in that way, although I think I'm going to start.
2: I love that question.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's terrific. I think it really gets at how not knowing something isn't a flaw, it creates curiosity. It's the joy. It's the path. It's the journey of learning.
2: Especially if you did it around the dinner table, because your 11-year-old might say, I don't know this, and your 16-year-old could answer.
1: Right. And we do find that with kids at such different ages, the mentorship that can occur and the progress, you know, when you see a sibling really accomplish something it
0: makes you buy in much faster.
2: For sure. And what's one of the best ways to learn something? Teach someone else. Reinforces their own learning. That's right. I
0: love this. I've already set it up to link these cubed timers into our show notes, so you can just go on that link. You don't understand. We love timers here, but I did not know about the cube timers, and so everyone in my office will be getting one. (laughs) (laughs) But this has been really powerful. And I particularly appreciate you sharing the parenting aspect of this, of how to maintain high standards, but also not attach self-esteem necessarily to those standards. Love. Right. It's important. Out of curiosity, do you think any of your kids are going to wind up in education? I do. I think
1: my daughter, Lily, who is the one about to turn 14, I think she loves teaching and so it would not spread.
0: That's fun. That's awesome. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience? Any kind of final last thoughts? I just want your
1: audience to know that first that they can learn anything, that learning is this joy and it's what your brains were designed to do, but there really is a technique around it and it's quite possible, I would even predict that the majority of us have just never been taught how to learn. And so I would encourage them to go on that journey and realize that, that the problem isn't necessarily with their brains. It's not with their brains. It's just what they've been taught in terms of the educational process that matters.
2: The hell.
0: We cannot thank you enough for your time and your generosity with us. I love this episode so much.
1: Well, it was an absolute joy and honor to be with you. I really appreciate work that you're doing for education.
2: Thank
0: you so much.
2: Thank you.